and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features Jennifer Arlen of New York University presenting her paper entitled Prosecuting Beyond the Rule of Law, Corporate Mandates Imposed Through Pretrial Diversion Agreements. The discussant is Daniel Richman of Columbia University, and it was recorded on March 5th, 2015. I wanted to thank both Alan and Ken for organizing this conference on behalf of all of us who have participated, and I feel particularly grateful because when Ken walked up and asked me to write this paper, it got me thinking about issues that I've been writing about for decades in a completely different way and from a different lens, not of a welfare economist, but from the perspective of what is happening and what are the implications of the rule of law. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have taken this new lens on a topic that I've been writing about for a long time. I also wanted to thank Marianne for all her efforts in pulling this together. So my paper is on prosecuting beyond the rule of law, corporate mandates imposed through pretrial diversion agreements. And the basic claim of the paper is straightforward, that the current enforcement practice of granting prosecutors enormous discretion to channel corporate convictions through contract rather than formal conviction and to use that to impose corporate governance mandates and other forms of mandates on firms violates the rule of law. Now, because this is not everybody's favorite topic, and because some of our enforcement practice is not known to everyone, I wanted to quickly lay out the lay of the land because it is an unusual practice, what's happening right now. So as most of you know, the US is probably distinctive in the world in imposing corporate respondeat superior liability on firms. So firms are criminally liable for crimes committed by servants, i.e. employees, in the scope of employment. This is not just upper level employees, which is what most countries do. It's all the way down. And unlike many countries, there's no good faith defense. So if you say to your employees, do not commit the crime, if you have an effective compliance program, it doesn't matter. Technically, you are still criminally liable if they commit the crime. Now, although that is the law on the books, it is no longer the law in practice. So when I first did an empirical study of this many years ago with uh, Mark Cohen at Vanderbilt and Cindy Alexander, we focused on convictions of publicly held firms. We were getting 20, 22 convictions a year, and they're big names. Lockheed, Rockwell, basically if you were a defense contractor, you were in our, in our data set, and lots of other big firms. But you look at this, we're getting four, seven, three, this is nothing. 
Now, I will say this is incomplete because it's sentencing commission data, and the sentencing commission data is woefully incomplete and doesn't code for everything, but you get the general idea. They're not in here. So does that mean they're out of the system? No. They're in this other world of deferred and non-prosecution agreements. 27 publicly held firms with a D or NPA in 2007, 33 publicly held firms in 2010, and the numbers go up. So this is the other world that they're in, which is a different world than criminal respondeat superior. So what is this world and why? Well, back in 1999, Eric Holder recognized that strict criminal respondeat superior liability for publicly held firms was actually a bad idea. And I confess I'm pleased about this because he said some things as to why that echoed some of the things that Rainier Crackman and I had said in 97 about how you should be thinking about this. He said that first, and obviously, with publicly held firms, shareholders do not decide to commit the crime. Some individual did. Liability has to be targeted at individuals. That should be our focus. If we want to do that, we need firms to detect wrongdoing and self-report. They're not going to if when we self, they self-report, we hit them with strict criminal liability. So we have to give credit to firms that self-report, cooperate, that have compliance programs, and just lowering sanctions doesn't do it. Why? Because convictions trigger collateral penalties. Debarment, delicensing. Firms are not afraid of the fine. They're afraid of the conviction itself. It doesn't matter. A conviction with zero fine can be the death of a firm. So we need a mechanism. And he proposed leniency. So firms that self-reported sometimes got out altogether. Larry Thompson came in in, nine, in 2003 and said, no, 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 we need something in between because many of the firms are doing half of what we want but not everything. So we need a way to give them credit, lower the sanction, get them out of collateral penalties, but keep our mitts on them, be able to impose a fine, be able to do other things. Thus came in the strong encouragement of prosecutors to use pretrial diversion agreements. What are they? They're agreements. It's an agreement between a prosecutor and a firm that the prosecutor will not convict the firm if the firm agrees to certain things. A DPA, the prosecutor at least files formal charges with a judge. So we now have judicial jurisdiction over the case, but it's all put on hold as long as the firm is a good citizen and at the end of the agreement, if the firm does everything right, the charges are dropped. NPA is literally just a contract. There's no charging document, no judge, and we just have an agreement, and then as long as we behave ourselves, everything's dropped. Now, what's in these things? There's a mess of things in these things that are not all that unusual. You agree to cooperate with federal authorities in order to help them be able to go after the individuals, at least it should be. You waive your right to a speedy trial, because otherwise they can't do this agreement for three years. You also pay fines. 
So these things tend to explicitly impose criminal fines even though there's no conviction and administrative sanctions. I should add, sometimes these fines aren't very big, but sometimes um, I have plenty of firms in my data set that have a combined sanctions imposed through these things of $700 million or so, and then we've seen more recently firms hit with more than that. And you accept a statement of facts regarding that you basically, you committed the crime. And if you violate it, you can be instantly sanctioned for the original crime with, a state, with your admission of facts against you. So you basically convict yourself. Now what interests me is everything else. So three quarters of these impose a compliance mandate on the firm. Now some of those mandates are not all that interesting. They just say, you know, do a compliance program that looks like the sentencing guidelines, right? That's not very unusual. Others of them are much more robust. But others have mandates that change committees on, within the executives, like in, require the executives to have certain committees on certain things, new committees on the board. Several of them separate the position of CEO and chairman of the board. I also teach corporations. This is one of the hot button topics in corporations, hotly debated as to whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Some of them not only require independent directors, but specifically name them. You have to appoint so-and-so to your board. And then some, many, around 30%, require you to accept and pay for a corporate monitor who can look at your compliance and also, in some cases, investigate you for other crimes. Now, in a prior paper uh, with uh, Marcel Cahan, we are taking a look at these to see can they be justified. But one of the points we make is that if you think about them compared to normal forms of liability, they're really a different form of liability. Governments impose duties all the time. But normally, we impose them ex ante, before the crime, on everyone. So we all have to not go over 65 on the highway. We all have to do certain things. All firms have to not dump certain waste, that kind of thing. And then you're sanctioned either for just breaching the duty under regulation or if it's criminal, if you breach the duty and there's a crime. But these things are imposing crime contingent duties, duties that you're subject to only if a wrong is detected and they're not imposed on everyone. So they're prosecutor-created crime contingent duties that can vary across firms with the same crime and the same original circumstances. So to give you an example, the most famous of these, um, and also unusual, but still it gives you an idea of what they can do, is Chris Christie's uh, and Dan is laughing because this is the poster child of DPAs, and I'm not even including the really fun term, uh, which was the uh, gift to Seton Hall Law School to endow a chair in business ethics, and the real problem with that is it wasn't actually to me. So otherwise, it would have been just fine. Um, so, they're required to adopt a very specific compliance program, training program, that's fine. 
Here we see separation of the chairman and the CEO, requirement that the chairman participate in certain meetings with certain people, monitor certain calls, the, the monitor, uh, reports by the CEO to the chairman. I mean, you get the idea. This is very, very detailed about how we're going to do compliance, who's going to get the information, et cetera. Now, in the other work I'm doing, I actually think there are lots of good reasons to impose mandates on firms with detected wrongdoing to say you better improve your compliance. What I'm interested in in this paper is are we doing it in a way consistent with the rule of law? So the idea that certain firms may need special attention is right. The question is, is the way we're approaching it right? And the claim of this paper is it's not. That giving individual US attorneys nearly complete authority to determine what mandates to impose and when violates the rule of law. So the basic claim, what is the rule of law? Well, it's got a variety of definitions depending on who you are. The one I'm focusing on is government actors are governed by law. Therefore, law should govern their use of government power. And we need to make sure they don't, that they use government power for public aims, not private aims. And that is a bifold issue both not their personal aims nor their personal view of public aims. Neither of those is legitimate. We need a constraint so that they are imposing law consistent with some legitimate public view of public aims. That means no individual should be unilateral free to create duties that affect others, determine how to impose them, determine when to enforce them without someone making sure that that power is being exercised for the public good. Now, the first issue I have to address in thinking about does this violate the rule of law is, is the rule of law even on the table here? Because after all, these things are not actually government enforcement power. They're contracts. NPAs in particular are just contracts. So it's even been suggested that by government officials that since they're just voluntary agreements, you rule of law people or you people who are worried about government power should get out of the conversation. And the argument is even though they're agreements, they are still quite obviously agreements that are using government power. When the prosecutor threatens to convict, unless you sign the agreement, that's a use of government power to achieve an end. The use to which the prosecutor puts that threat has to be a public end. It cannot be a private end. So he couldn't threaten to convict unless you build him a house. We would agree that's a misuse of power. He can't threaten to convict to have you agree to do something unless it's a legitimate thing for a government actor to do, and it can't be whatever he thinks it should be. So PDAs also involve government power in that if you breach it, his 
remedy is not a contractual remedy, which is damages or the remedy of, you know, specific performance. His remedy is convicting. So that's also government power. So the argument is these are like law. Therefore, I mean, this is implicating the rule of law. Therefore, we ought to think about what that means. Now, traditionally, we constrain authority through separation of powers. Right? That's how we bring things into the rule of law. We put rulemaking in one body. We put rule interpretation in another and enforcement in a third. That doesn't work in a number of circumstances. Um, and here I am relying on work by Ed Rubin, also Kenneth Colt Davis, and others looking at the importance of administrative agency being able to do rule creation and administration and things like that. That is essential. So we need to think more generally, how do we bring things in the rule of law? Well, we use two mechanisms. One is to constrain the scope of authority that any individual actor has so that he's not allowed. There's no one person that can create a duty, interpret the scope of the duty, and enforce it. And we then have oversight over actors within their scope of authority, whatever it is, to make sure they're using it for the right purpose. So in the scope of authority, we separate out the ability to uh, create a duty, enforce a duty, and interpret it. We rarely put it all in one person. And we have various levels of oversight, the least oversight being none, unilateral authority to do whatever you want. The next step up oversight would be internal oversight within your own division. So for example, that might be oversight within your own agency. It might be oversight within the executive branch, OIRA. And then there's oversight from external, like through a judge. And I did this little matrix, because I can't help myself, um, that sort of helps me to think about it. So each of these, this is the scope of authority. We see decreasing levels of constraint once you're able to create duties. That's a lot less constraint than when you're just enforcing them. And uh, this is lots of external oversight and internal oversight. And here's there's no oversight. And we see that. This is the direction of decreasing legitimacy, where you're not particularly constrained on that dimension or that dimension. And the claim is we're looking to see, we want mechanisms to make sure that you're not down here, which is where basically you're able to create duties and no one's really looking at you. That's where we should be the most worried. So then you take a look at DPA mandates very quickly, because I know I only have a few minutes left, to see whether or not they, where they fit on this, and are they, as the DOJ suggests, just really enforcement. They're just like any other use of enforcement power. But if we go look at traditional prosecutorial power over enforcement, we'll see it's actually relatively constrained, I mean, within lots of limits, on both dimensions. They're not supposed to, when they go to sanction you, create the duty. They're sanctioning you for violating a law that Congress or a regulator created. The prosecutor didn't create it. 
And when they say you created it, I mean, sorry, when they say you violated it, they're not the last word, right? A judge is going to determine what's the outer limits of that law, not only ex ante, but we're going to have external review over whether that happened. Now, greater or lesser, once we're doing plea bargains, I understand, but the capacity for review is there. Now we look at DPAs and NPAs. Here, the prosecutor gets to create the mandate. So as long as it looks like a mandate designed to deter crime, he's allowed enormous discretion in what he can impose. The DOJ does not put real limits on it, except for you can't actually do this thing of requiring gifts anymore to, to law schools and stuff. But aside from that, there are almost no constraints. And the US attorney has complete authority to impose the mandate he wants. There is no oversight by the DOJ except for certain crimes, like the Fraudulent Corrupt Practices Act, Antitrust, and Tax, where there is some centralization. But outside of that, there is virtually no oversight. So on the scope of authority, the prosecutor is creating the duty. He interprets whether you violated it, and he can sanction. And in one case where a firm was told it breached and tried to argue to a judge, I didn't breach, I want you to basically arbitrate this, the court said the prosecutor's uh, sanction is indictment. He's free to indict you. You know, argue it later after the conviction. We can go back to this. Um, and like I said, there's very little oversight. And while there's some, maybe extremely weak judicial review for DPAs. There's none for NPAs. And even for DPAs, uh, judges have not uh, asserted authority to decide if the mandates are abusive, unless they're abusing like the Constitution due process or something like that. But there's an awful lot of corporate governance reform you can do short of that. Um, so the argument of the paper is that unlike enforcement authority, which is there, DPA mandates are here, or if it's the FCPA, here. A little weak internal oversight by the fraud division to see whether or not your mandate is right. And they're in a zone of very little constraint from external oversight and very little constraint on the scope of authority. Uh, briefly, if we think about the other type of agency that gets rulemaking authority, which would be at least on this dimension, agencies that adopt rules, I mean real rules, have at least constraint through oversight, whether it's oversight from the narrow grant of authority to adopt the rule, so Congress can give them more or less authority in their rulemaking, or if it's from the public notice, the public content, comment that whole uh, process that does create a kind of external oversight. And then there's always, in many cases, OIRA kicking around with some oversight. So um, the claim is it's not there. So uh, very briefly, what would you do? Well, the short answer on what to do is 
the heart of this paper is focusing on identifying the problem. I'm still working on the what to do. Because actually, I think this is an incredibly hard problem. The simple answer would be to say no mandates. But I don't think that's right. I believe we need a way to give these firms. Um, certain firms need additional uh, intervention. Many people have suggested judicial review. That's tempting, separation of powers. Judicial review doesn't work unless there's some clear ex-ante guidance about why we're doing mandates, what the mandate should be, what is their purpose. Judges can't do judicial review with no standards at all, and there aren't any right now. So judicial review either means judges sign off on all of them, or they just do their personal preferences. Both would be a disaster, because judges have very little expertise in corporate criminal law or corporate governance, federal judges. Um, so one would want, uh, just for starters, additional guidelines from the DOJ on the purposes of these things, limitations, things like that. And I'm inclined to try to channel this through something that more resembles a rule creation, a rulemaking process where we get public notice, comment, where we recognize we're regulating, because we are. Um, and then just I will note, I know this is not cost free. So regulatory agencies are notoriously captured. They are notoriously intentionally underfunded on the enforcement side to basically allow Congress to claim to care about enforcement while not doing so in this area. Um, I think that rulemaking would kill genuine innovation of the type that you see coming out of people like Ben Losky and other people like that, who's been quite targeted. He's the top of the New York Department of Financial Services. Nevertheless, my view is the costs of the discretion, other than the rule of law costs, are enormous. So it's not just rule of law, but you have prosecutors with no expertise coming in to regulate the corporate governance of some of the biggest, most powerful firms in the country with, by and large, very little idea of what actually the trade-offs are. And so we may have to come up with a more rational system, even though there may be some downsides. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. That gets us to a great start. Um, the discussant is Dan Richmond, Columbia University. You can make that go away. Okay. Can I shut it? Yeah, you should. Okay. Um, I'd like to, to echo Jen in, in thanking Alan and, and Ken for inviting me and giving me a chance to avoid the, the slush that's piled <laughs> up all over New York and, and look out at this beautiful semi-Caribbean uh, grotto outside. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, don't expect a, uh, a flag-waving um, attack on, on Jen for me. I, I'm really a fan of her work, and I've been following it closely. And, and she's certainly onto something in focusing on these, these PDAs. Um, 
even even at the at their core, forgetting about the what we'll be talking about here, that just the size of the money that's that's changing hands is is phenomenal. And this is something that certainly is worth focusing on. Normatively hard, exactly from a, from our distance as outsiders to to figure out. My my progressive friends are, are constantly condemning these as as the government uh, just throwing in the towel in the face of, of, of um, big corporate uh, litigation power. And my white-collar lawyer friends are telling me how the government is regularly extorting money out of these, these, these poor, <laughs> these poor uh, firms just trying to make an innocent trillion. Um, <laughs> so so it, you know, it, it's difficult. And, and Jenna's certainly right that it's that the feature she's looking at, the, the involvement of the government, the involvement of U.S. attorney's offices in particular, in their crafting of compliance programs and, and sometimes even the, the manipulation of corporate governance structures is, is phenomenally interesting. Um, I, I, I do think it's strange when general jurisdiction prosecutors, the ones who you know, right before they moved into the securities unit or the fraud unit were doing drug cases, are, are engaged in, in some variant of, of corporate governance. Um, that is strange, but I gotta remind you, it's, all, it's, it should, it's almost as strange when right after they spend a couple years doing those things at the U.S. Attorney's Office, they go into compliance and they become the lead compliance officer. So the idea that anybody has great expertise in compliance, that there are organizational structures that promote sort of um, state-of-the-art compliance practices is, is a real stretch, and we should think hard before we condemn one side for not providing the, the organizational expertise of another. Compliance operates at, at a really interesting boundary. It operates at the boundary between uh, case enforcement and uh, organizational exigencies, including making money. Um, the idea that any culture really as of now, is well developed to provide um, best in, in best state-of-the-art compliance practices is, I think, ridiculous. This is a, a new game we're playing. Um, it's not a bad game. It, it's a game that's going to take a while to develop. Um, yes, we could condemn uh, corporate compliance structures as being cosmetic. I'm sure many are. We can condemn some as as the reverse of cosmetic, or or, or even. Or, or worse than cosmetic as being cosmetic and imposing unnecessary costs on the firm. That's, I'm sure, true. Um, but the idea that, that people within the firm without enforcement backgrounds, uh, without enforcement backgrounds with a, a profit maximization orientation are, are going to be particularly good at thinking about compliance is also a tall order. So, so I think there's going to be a, a mixing of cultures over time and the idea that that we're going to get this right quickly, and that we could um, ex ante create structures to ensure that there is the right mix of these cultures, I think, is, is, is something we ought to think twice before we, we push for. Um, notwithstanding that sort of the oddness of these, these PDAs, um, particularly with respect to the, the imposition of, of corporate governance or compliance requirements, I, you know, Gen Z's value in them. And, and I think that's an interesting move she makes. And I agree with her when, managed, when they're managed correctly in terms of pr promoting optimal deterrence. Um, she nicely explains how against a, a flat background of, 
of respondent superior liability, which is, you know, the rule in the United States, but nobody thinks it's the right rule. Um, what we're doing is, is a series of, of workarounds, and um, this, may be, this may be the road towards an interesting workaround, um, although I wouldn't push on that too hard because it's really, it's difficult to see what mix of, of, of legislation and, and common law development and institutional experimentation will provide the right mix. Um, but, but moving on to the, the important points she, she focuses on is, what, the first question is, is, are these PDAs sort of deviations from, from the rule of law, just as a, a grand normative part? And there's a huge culture clash when you discuss these things between the ad law people and the crim law people. You know, the ad, there is no question that most of what we take for granted as ordinary run-of-the-mill federal criminal practice or even state criminal practice um, is at least an affront, if not a violation, of what many ad law people think of as the rule of law. Yeah. Um, what you're going to do with that, that, that fact, I'm not quite sure. It might mean that you should move to France. It, it, it might mean that you should reconsider what your, what your understanding of the rule of law is and to what extent it, it imports notions of institutional design as well as sort of formalistic um, questions of, of due process. Um, you know, are these PDAs in form really different from, from what happens to, to individuals in regular criminal cases? Um, you know, Jen makes, a, makes much of how this is a uh, prosecutor-created crime contingent um, duties. Yeah, they are. Um, this happens regularly. This is what non. This is what cooperation agreements are about for individuals, or non-prosecution agreements when somebody is, is essentially forced to testify under threat of prosecution. Um, I'm not making a strong normative argument that these are good things to be done. I'm not making a strong normative argument that where that the government, when in either in exchange for as an explicit matter or with an implicit understanding forces a union official or a public official to resign in order to avoid prosecution. That too is, is, is something similar to, to the structure of, of what, what PDAs are. Uh, similarly, pretrial diversion for drug treatment. Um, again, some of this is done statutorily in ways, uh, some, some of it's done post-adjudication, a lot is done pre-adjudication. These are real, these drug treatment um, approaches vary greatly across the United States. And in here again, we're not exactly sure whether sort of the, the hand of a, of a court in the form of, of post-adjudication treatment programs is better than, than pre-trial uh, pre diversion that leads to um, uh, drug treatment programs. So, I just put in these pieces about how individuals are treated within the ordinary criminal uh, processes just to remind you that, that yeah, this is a, a little interesting. It, it's quite interesting that prosecutors are able to sort of manufacture these, these mechanisms that are not necessarily authorized by law in any way and, and aren't even in the hands of a court to impose as a matter of, of sentence. That will vary from place to place, but that's often true. Um, yes, uh, if you're going to start to reform that kind of um, power fluctuation or for some people's words abuse, um, I would start with individuals rather than, than just the, the handful of firms which when you think about it are, are really small in number compared to the number of individuals out there whose liberty interests are, 
are regularly being affected by what I don't think are, are radically offensive practices, but, but ones that, to the extent you're, you're as strict as, as Jen is in, in judging their, their legitimacy, um, are, are worth reconsidering. Um, Jen also moves beyond this sort of structural focus on the nature of these, these um, PDAs and looks to sort of how we're going to regulate their use. Um, she, take, she, she accepts that, that they may have their place, as I said, and she wants to know sort of who, where should they come from, to what extent should the PDAs, to the extent we're going to have them, be subject to, to rule of law regulation and, in particular, to, to rules. Um, and yes, there, there are obviously some good arguments. I mean, she, you know, we were both laughing because Chris Christie plays an outsized role in, in <laughs> no pun intended, in, oh, pun intended, uh, in, in, in discussions of the abuses that, that, uh, that rogue U.S. attorneys can, can engage in when, when having the authority to impose various corporate governance and other compliance practices on firms, for sure. Um, there's no question that, that uh, Loose cannons are out there. The loose cannons need to be thought about in any regulatory system. Um, and I also want to say, again, sort of asking for a little, I don't want to say patience, but a little sort of uh, due deliberation as we move. It's quite possible that we're in the middle of a, a, a period of time where regulations and a rather decent degree of top-down at least oversight, if not uh, ex-ante regulation, is, is coming from the Department of Justice in this area. We've only been in this game for about 20 to 30 years, um, which isn't that long when you think about it, particularly when you think that most of the action is in, only in a handful of districts. And it's only been in the last couple years that, that, the, that there's been a bit more of a proliferation of, of, of what sort of, of districts are doing these cases. So. So, you know, this is a learning process. Um, one would not want to rush top-down regulation, even if one thought that was an optimal approach eventually. Uh, so let's be careful about uh, what we want in the way of, of, of top-down regulation. And I also don't think we should um, overstate the value of, of restrictions coming from, from the center in this area. Um, we've made a really interesting decision in, in setting up the federal criminal justice system. Um, contestable to be sure, historically contingent to be sure. Um, but what we've done is, you know, notwithstanding, I see John Hughes here, but, you know, notwithstanding theories of the unitary executive. That's Chris. <laughs> no. I'm not afraid of you. You know, there isn't, there's not even a unitary main justice. I mean, there's not even a unitary justice department. Um, and everybody knows that. Don't worry, no personal attacks. This is, a, this is just, I think it's, it's a debating point that people throw around that, you know, the executive and the take care. And the United States Department of Justice is, was founded way after the U.S. Attorney's offices were doing their thing, and they'll continue to do their thing for a while. And, and I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence. I think very baked into the, the criminal justice system of the United States in the federal area is a desire to just prevent the president from really making use of this enormous criminal power. Um, what they've done is, is rip it up and scatter it to the districts. Um, it, that has some downsides, to be sure, but it, it should not be thought of as A, something to be fought against, and B, something that necessarily is, is uh, 
against the rule of law. The rule of law, to some extent, may have been animating and continues to animate Congress in, in its protection of the U.S. Attorney's offices. And yes, there's some, something personal going on here, too, since to some degree they had some choice in their selection. But uh, much more is, is a negative decision to keep Washington from really having the kind of clout that we would normally expect a federal executive department to have. This is a very special area, and I think we've always been aware of that. Um, next, what are the arguments for having clear ex-ante rules? Um, we'll be talking about that a lot in various papers, and I think there's a real synergy in some of the papers uh, across this space. And, and certainly there are very good arguments when you have a whole lot of decisions being made by line decision actors out there to having clear ex-ante rules coming from the top. Um, not only is that in the way of just straightforward guidance, but one of the things that some of the papers I was reading coming from, from some, for this conference really got me thinking about is, you know, rules are not self-executing. Rule or, or guidance from the top is not self-executing. There's no acoustical separation. Uh, and we don't want there to be an acoustical separation between what the, the top of a bureaucracy wants and the messages that get taken down below. And, and here's where um, I think the, the fire alarms and uh, work of, of McNall gas really is, is useful in a bureaucratic context. You know, one of the good arguments for having rules is that those who are subject to a bureaucratic uh, efforts can, can cite a rule. And if the bureaucrat on the other side was not responsive to the citation of the rule, you can appeal up the chain, and the rule really is a way to sort of ensure that, that line actors really are, have their feet held to the fire about what the top says. Now that says, that said, I don't think that that argument is as important or carries as much weight when you're dealing with a very small number of cases, when you're dealing with a really small number of cases involving actors who are perfectly able and who always will go up the chain on their own. You know, one of the things that, that, that Jen's point about what the U.S. Attorney's offices can do, main justice, what rules require of the districts with respect to the center, doesn't capture it, no matter what the rules are. If you are a Fortune 500 company or or even another kind of company that is in serious um, negotiations with the U.S. Attorney's Office, you will be in, in touch with Maine Justice. You will be appealing up the chain. This is going to be on their radar for either from the get-go or certainly from, from later on. So the idea that in the absence of rules, you won't have some sort of internalization uh, within the agreement of, of what, the, what Maine Justice is thinking and, and what its guidance is, I think is, is, is not true. Um, another point to be made is, you know, I, I, I feel one of the reasons I'm, I, I like going to conferences is because I just take whatever the theme is and I try to argue against it just to make my trip interesting. So, so my, my argument against, the, my continuation of my argument against the rule of law um, in this area is that, you know, Top-down regulation in this corporate area, in the corporate crime area, to the extent that's happened, has not been very good. You know, when you think about um, where we are now, where we are now is, and this is something Jen picks up, that your average large firm is essentially able to hold, its, to hold itself hostage. It's that great line from, um, the great piece from 
uh, uh, blazing saddles, guy puts a gun to his head, you know, because of not the possibility of, corp of corporate criminal sanctions, but all these debarments, all these collateral um, rules that the center has generated. Um, when confronted, the political economy of criminal law means when confronted with uh, rulemaking opportunities with respect to what should happen to people who are defined as criminals, what we do is go crazy. Um, so as soon as you push all the decision making up to the center and force ex ante specification and rules in the corporate crime area, you get the clunky system we have now where we can't afford to prosecute corporations because they will die. And they can credibly say they will die, not because of the, 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 the conviction in of itself or even the fine, but the barments, the, the various collateral consequences, and, and in many cases, the death of the firm, with Arthur Anderson being the famous citation here. So, so the, I, don't, I think we should be, think long and hard before we, we push up uh, decision-making power to the top. Um, we've made, just to conclude, we've made some really interesting decisions in the United States about federal criminal enforcement power. And, and I'm not ready to defend any of them strongly, but I am ready to say that we should be very sensitive to the, I think, um, benefits of decentralization, the benefits of not necessarily uh, loose cannons, that's hard to defend, but of conversations rather than regulation from the center. Um, this is probably, A, the best we're going to do, and, and B, probably the best, the best thing we should do. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. I just, I'm going to give Jennifer a chance to respond to that very briefly, and then we'll open it up for general discussion. I just want to put on the floor how some of these things spread. The uh, police chief of the city of Pittsburgh is in jail. The mayor was told by the federal government, an agent of the federal government, that if he ran for re-election, he would be faced with prosecution. So he didn't run for re-election. Now that's good. We got rid of a bad mayor, but it's a bad. The way in which we got rid of the bad mayor is certainly not the way in which we think that this country, at least not the way I think this country should go. Jennifer? Thank you so much, and thank you, Dan, very much for those comments, and I'm only gonna say a couple things because I really want to get as many comments from the audience as possible since these are very hard issues to work through. I need input. Um, a couple things, one of which is I completely agree with one of the points, Dan, actually I agree with most of what he said, but a, an important one which is if we were to ask where is the biggest rule of law problem in the criminal justice system, or I won't say rule of law, when the biggest source of injustice, is it what's happening with corporations or what's happening with individuals, particularly individuals who are not well lawyered? There's just no doubt it's individuals. And I sometimes hear, I live in a corporate crime world, and so we focus on that. And sometimes I hear comments of corporate crime exceptionalism, this is where it's bad and it's sort of great everywhere else. And I am, perfectly aware of the fact that if 
I could wave a magic wand and my input would fix one area and one area alone, which area would I fix? It's not the one I've devoted my life to, right? Which is corporate crime. However, I only have expertise in the area that I'm working in. So that's where I'm focusing. But I do think it's very important for corporate crime people to recognize that what's happening below my radar is very concerning. However, I care about my area. Um, so I also think that it's right that our system works because of decentralized US attorneys. I'm a huge fan of decentralized US attorney's offices that don't have oversight. Living in New York, it would be very hard not to be seeing the different treatment of corruption in the New York State Legislature by the governor's office, which created the Moreland Commission and then strategically disbanded it, I suspect when the water got somewhere between lukewarm and hot, and Preet Bharara, who said, oh, here, let me have your files. Gee, you've got massive corruption there, and went forward. If I look at when, what Ben Lossky is doing in the New York Department of Financial Services, the SEC would never do what he's doing. And he's fixing some really important problems of conflicts of interest in consulting firms like Deloitte, et cetera. So I think that's really important. And I think that without discretion, the political forces will kill genuine enforcement. The question is, what are the limits? Should there be limits? And that's why I came up with my matrix, which in my world should be actually a nice two by two matrix. It's three by three and that actually breaks my heart because it's all wrong if it's three by three. But I came up with a matrix to figure out why was I happy with prosecutorial discretion of the form I see it normally, but not with these. And I do think that what the US attorney's offices normally do is constrained by the fact they have to enforce existing rules, not create new ones. And Dan has properly pushed me throughout this process to recognize that they do still impose mandates like drug treatment. I have a little section in the paper about why I think drug treatment is different. I'm not sure I have fully articulated that well enough to um, land the jump, so to speak, but I know it's fundamentally different because it's one, you have to actually have someone addicted, right? I mean, there's limits, and there is more, you can't say drug treatment by doing whatever. I mean, it's gotta be a drug treatment program of some sort. So there are some limits, and I need to articulate them better, because I think it is fundamentally different to be reforming corporate governance of a publicly held firm outside of even compliance and sending someone to drug treatment. Thank you. OK, Richard. The sun is sort of blocking. The sun is sort of blocking my vision. So wag your hand deliberately. Yeah. Okay, I have Jesus and Charlie. Jennifer, I think that virtually all of us have thought about this, agree with you that there's some serious wrongs that are going on. And the hard question is remedies. And the question I want to ask is, why is you so vexed by this question? You point out a bunch of things that are wrong, we just ban them from the negotiation space. So 
for example, in the Pete Marwick situation, one of the conditions that they said is if you sign a deferred prosecution agreement, you are not allowed to honor the contract you had to pay for the legal defenses of those of your employees who were prosecuted. And Lewis Kaplan says that provision is simply not part of the negotiation. If you look at the Bristol Myers Squibb situation, that wretch uh, Christopher Christie imposed a condition which says he got his man on the board and what happened is they had to be present at all meeting and now what you say is you're not allowed to do that. And indeed you're not allowed to cover any particular activities of the corporation except for those which are germane to the prosecution. And the applicable body of law for this, which I, I don't think you referred to, but I think it covers it, is all of the stuff about proportionate nexus and familiarity associated with the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. I say yeah, I mean, but that not that the way in which you would want to do this, to go in exactly that direction instead of kind of thinking about this in, in terms of general norms as opposed to specific commands? Well, so that's an interesting question. It's sort of challenging, actually. I mean, channeling in some way Judge Gleason in HSBC, his, D his DPA where he's, his oversight of the DPA where he says there are certain things that we judges should be able to prohibit, like, in fact, the things you mentioned. So there's some clear things that are an abuse. Uh, some of them are actually up a, coming up against, you know, constitutional violations. And... Um, it's, I think, pretty straightforward and easy, and I'm, I realize I should say it, I don't, to say judges should be able to prohibit things that are unconstitutional, and I didn't say that, but I should. Um, so that's, you know, that's fine. It's always worth saying. Um, you know, I don't say it. You're right. If it's unconstitutional, yeah, we should prohibit it, and, like, I should say that. Um, however, to me... That's not the interesting issue and that's not what's troubling because we have knocked out those practices. And what's interesting to me is prosecutors actually have a plausible claim for doing a lot of the other things we're doing consistent with general deterrence, including separating the chairman from the CEO, including creating certain management committees. These aren't constitutional violations. So a lot of your, they're not. A lot of your work is sort of saying, well, if it goes beyond the bounds of what you could normally do, it's not clear if it does, in part because there's so much uh, wiggle room in the sentencing guidelines about what it would be, what you could impose through probation in the sentencing guidelines. If you look at what's imposed through plea agreements, they're not that different, and that's under the guidelines. So to me, if I do that, I guess I'm assuming away the hard part of the problem, and I've always liked the, the hard part is these compliance programs, we need mandated compliance programs in some cases. We need to look at internal oversight. We can't say you can't do this at all. We can't say that's unconstitutional because it's not. So how do we handle a zone of regulation that's appropriate for somebody in a way that's within the rule of law. So to me, it's the hard part of the question that's interesting. And just saying, let's get rid of all this stuff. Well, the other thing is I have an entire other paper on why we have to be mandating to some degree. I believe the other paper. And so I'm trying to think about how do we do it right. 
I agree with you. There has to be parity between the deferred prosecution agreements and the sentencing guidelines, but that doesn't establish that the sentencing guidelines, if they require you to uh, run a division between the CEO and the chairman of the board, that those things are constitutional. Um, it seems to me that the due process arguments apply to both with equal force, and so therefore maybe you have to be more rebellious than you are rather than less. I have Chaisu. Uh, I'm taking this from a slightly different perspective, not about so much about the rule of law, but have people thought about these uh, corporate mandates as a mechanism design problem in the sense of I'm the government or I'm a regulator and I'm trying to think about what will be the optimal thing to do? Let me forget for a second about uh, the legal details about how to implement it. Uh, seems to me that if we don't have at least an idea of how an optimal mechanism will work, it's very difficult for me to think then about the legal implementation of that. So that's a great question. Um, this paper came out of Ken Scott hearing a paper I'm working on with Marcel Cahan on if we took an optimal deterrence perspective as economists and asked, one, what is the goal of corporate criminal liability and given that we can do much of it in an ideal world with monetary sanctions and ex-ante duties, because I said so earlier, so I think so, right? Um, I get to start there. Why would you ever impose crime contingent mandates? When could they ever be justified? What form would they take, et cetera? So I have already a, some work on basically arguing that there are situations where you do need these, focusing on agency costs. We ought to do them in the right circumstances. And therefore, that brings us to paper number two, which is given that we need to do them, are we doing them in the right way? Now, you may be suggesting paper number three, which would be, well, what does it mean to have effective compliance? Do we have the slightest idea what it is? Personally, I actually think that in many ways we don't. And um, Jeff Miller and I are actually jointly involved in the ALI project on principles of corporate compliance enforcement and risk management. And I'm on the enforcement side of that. He's on the compliance. But the big thing that I'm going to be pushing on, on the compliance people, is compliance is really oriented towards rules and procedures to limit discretion within the firm to reduce the risk of a wrong and not enough attention is paid on the more interesting question, which is how do you change compensation and promotion to reduce the incentives to commit the wrong? And I've been bringing people into my courses, including people who've gone to prison, to sort of talk about, like, why'd you do it? And compensation, promotion, all of those things are like front and center. So I think if you're suggesting that we need to understand deterrence better within the firm, I couldn't agree more, but I still think we need to be doing some sort of mandate once we do. Speak up. What? Sorry. I was a, a little bit surprised from your description of some of these programs that a lot of the things we are mandating are inputs. We are saying you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to do this other thing. 
And we believe that in general, we are very bad at measuring inputs. We are very good at measuring outputs. I can measure you publish a paper or you don't publish a paper, so I fire you, I give you 10. Right. I'm very bad at measuring how hard do you try to write this paper. Uh, because who knows what you are really doing. I mean, I had to take some of these classes uh, on like all these the diversity things. And you know, was I really looking at the screen? No, I was just clicking the button. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever I got at the end, I, they gave me some type of certificate. So pen can claim they measure my input, they didn't measure any output because I didn't pay any attention whatsoever. That's the type of things that, you know, for me from an optimal mechanism design perspective should be very upfront. Anyway. Yeah. Charlie. Charles. We're over here. My, my, uh, I have two comments and they're highly correlated with the, both uh, comments that, that we just heard. So one is a big question and it is, um, U.S. is exceptional. That suggests that there would be an empirical study of outcome that would tell us whether making corporations criminally, criminally liable really matters for anything. Uh, we're, we're wrapping our heads around this incredibly difficult problem um, and these rule of law violations because we think there's some great benefit to making corporations rather than individuals liable. I, do, I have some doubts about that general point. So I'd love to see some evidence that the U.S. is so much better off than all the rest of the world, like let's say Australia and the U.K. and all these places where obviously criminal corporations are running rampant, even though we are unique in, in this uh, sort of, uh, so I'm, I'm skeptical. And then my second comment is along the lines of Richard's, which is it seems to me like there's some very easy things here that um, we should be all able to agree on. Um, for example, when we had the banking uh, settlements, which are now in the sort of $200 billion range, uh, uh, so it's getting to be real money. And what's interesting is that, uh, as I think Chris and I have talked about before, first of all, there are some of these settlements that are making private, they're mandating private contributions, which is really weird. That is, um, yeah, no, I mean, these banks are basically being forced to give money to whoever Eric Holder likes. And I've talked to some of the compliance people and they nod like this when I say that. And then they say they're not at liberty to discuss it. So my first point is this should be prohibited. And my second point is where is the sunshine on this? You can't find out what the Justice Department is asking these banks to do specifically. We can't even know. So you know everything? So, um, answer it. I was approached by a staffer of Good Lottie who showed me the letter that Good Lottie sent to uh, the administration and the administration sent back. And the practices that you were talking about is this. Uh, what the government did in the prosecution of the banks, they said, we will give you a $2 credit against your mortgage obligations to people who are, you know, the, the mortgagees for every dollar that you contribute to organizations designated by somebody which will go to Acorn and Company. And he wanted to know why and how they did it, who was involved and so forth. Uh, the answer that came back from the Attorney General's office was a disgrace. What it said is, first, these corporations were represented by competent counsel. 
Well, that's, of course, exactly what the problem is. Competent counsel are willing to take, essentially, basically save $2 if they have to spend one, and they don't care where it goes to. And the other thing he said when he was asked about influence, he said, nobody dictated the um, outcome. We didn't. But the question was, whom did you speak to? What did they say? And the government stonewalled and refused to answer that. But showing you the letter. No, but that's exactly revealing. Do you know the, okay. where the money went? Yes, we do know that. And we know, we know the organizations, and they're all left-wing okay. organizations that could never get a direct appropriation for Congress. Okay, so these practices, I mean, that's basically extraordinary restitution, we would call it. Which, all right, you can call it whatever you want. We have the panel. Um, it's officially called extraordinary restitution. The theory is extraordinary restitution, which is restitution, ostensibly restitution, that's not actually aimed at victims. So yes, another word for it is money given to someone who had nothing to do with the crime. We do it in environmental actually all the time. So there is a DOJ policy against extraordinary restitution on the criminal side in DPAs and NPAs. It explicitly doesn't imply to environmental. So in environmental, it's fine to give to NRDC or the idea is they'll protect the environment. But well, that's right. But that's a set of issues, and I think those issues are important. I have focused on the set I'm focusing on, the mandates, because I actually think they're more important to the economy as a whole. In the end, the fact that we're doing mandates that are fundamentally altering the internal governance of firms, and also sort of to go to Richard's point about focusing on the things that are unconstitutional, I mean, if we have prosecutors dictating compliance levels, and just, I'll pick HSBCs, HSBCs, now, their compliance was terrible. They were the main bank for one of the leading Mexican drug cartels, all right? So not good. They set their compliance up from 24 million in 2009 to 240 million in 2011, and it's heading north. Uh, what J.P. Morgan is now doing, I mean, they're hiring massively and complying, firing massively everywhere else. So it's why I think it's worth a conversation about if we need to do this, and I suspect we do, how do we do it and do it right, and is individual U.S. attorney discretion the right way as an economist? Now, that's what I'm working on with Marcel and the right way as a legal system, which is what this paper is about. Is this something we should say is okay, even if we know someone ought to be doing it? What about the cross-country effort? Oh, cross-country, it would it's impossible to test anything because our laws are much broader than anyone else's. Uh, we have a ton of gatekeeper laws, which other people don't do. So in fact, your entire world the dominant form of liability in your world is not, your world is banks, financial institutions. The world I know of your work focuses on financial institutions. Um, we are rarely catching banks for dumping in a, for Love Canal. Um, every blue moon we get them for bribing a foreign official in some usually weird and interesting way like hiring their children, right? Like we, we, we may or may not get them, but that's not usually what we're getting them for. It's almost all this know your customer stuff or um, you know, helping someone give money to Syria. 
right? It's bank liability designed to prevent other people from doing a bad thing. It's gatekeeper liability. We impose a massive amount of gatekeeper liability that other people don't impose. How would, how would we compare our system versus their system <coughs> on that, particularly since our system hits just about every bank in the world, including under their system? So there'd be no way to do an empirical study. There isn't a bank in the country that does, no, but that's what, that doesn't do dollar clearing. <coughs> if you do dollar clearing, we got you, right? If you send an email through a US server, we got you. So there's no way to do a study. But, but, I mean, I wasn't <coughs> focused on banking there. I, I'm just interested in trying to figure out, how do we know any of this is useful? Like, we don't. Right? I mean, it, and I doubt it. No, actually, in a lot of these areas, other countries have come on board. The FCPA? Yeah, I got to say, the, the United FCPA States is, is you, you won't like this, but we're becoming the dominant model in this space. Yeah, the UK is following Brazil us now. Brazil is looking at us. The OECD, oh, absolutely. The OECD has signed on to our approach. I mean, we are, you're going to see this everywhere. I want to move on. Mike? No, right. <laughs> They're all the so, I'm wondering if there are any important pieces of this that could be um, sort of separated and dealt with through some sort of clear uh, rules or prohibitions. And usually when there are clear rules and prohibitions, you have one of two <coughs> problems. You either have, have a line drawing problem that <coughs> make the rules not clear, or you have unintended consequences yeah. that make an absolute prohibition undesirable. And so I'm going to throw out just two examples, and I'd be curious to hear both of you as to whether uh, it is either you know, fanciful to think that there's a rule or the bad consequences. So one possibility is uh, a rule that says that no monetary penalties other than going to direct victims or that all monetary penalties uh, going other than to direct victims have to go into the general treasury. Um, and then the second rule that I was thinking uh, is that there can be no imposition of uh, direct primary conduct controls with respect to the outside world. I'm not talking about internal compliance uh, regimes, but no rules about external conduct that are not applicable to the entire uh, uh, industry. Right. That brings you back to the rule of law. So well, by external... The question is, is it possible to work? So you mean, for example, like the KPMG limitations on the scope of business type of thing? Yes. Um, and, and things like new, new mortgage requirements, or you have to lower your interest rate, or you have to uh, have, have an, a different environmental compliance regime. Than, I don't mean compliance, but a different substantive environmental uh, rules than other companies have, or anything of that sort. So. Um, on the um, no monetary penalties to others, um, I'm always reluctant. Well, I'm not saying no penalties. I'm right. just saying the money goes to the treasury. Yeah. So I tend to actually favor money to the treasury as opposed to um, extraordinary restitution. I'm not going to answer that as a global matter because I haven't looked at all of them. For example, I know it's very active in the environmental area. 
I haven't studied what they're doing with it. Is and it, it just, is it ever a good idea? Well, is my question. And, so it's definitely a definable, clear principle. Um, and I, so I am very reluctant to answer whether anything is ever a good idea. If I haven't actually, I'm a I tend to be data driven. If I haven't actually looked at all the places we're actually doing it, so I have really studied the mandates. I have read the mandates. I feel very comfortable discussing the mandates, but they don't include this. I mean, not since the DOJ eliminated them. In my world, they don't include this. I got to say, that this question of the general revenues really goes, and you're probably thinking about it going, so it's not a coincidence to the question of, of, of forfeitures, which is, which is another place in which, which targeted. Which I'm not looking at. Right, but, but it's another place where we certainly can see the pathologies involved. We certainly can see how incentives might be really badly aligned and, and cause either over-enforcement or, or strange kinds of enforcement. Forfeitures or, are scary. And that said, you know, the, the low-level defense of those applies here, which is, in the best of all worlds, you're surely right that, that a, a very sensitive budget authority would, would give agencies what they need to ensure that they do their mission and really have the kind of information that they, that they, that they need to process the, the budget request. We actually aren't in that world, and then in a, in a second or third best world, there might be defenses for, for an enforcement agency being able to, to steer money to its allies. And I'm saying allies in a very generic sense, because that might range from state and local enforcement, as we see in the forfeiture context, which has you know, horrible uh, anecdotes, or more than anecdotes coming out of it, but also some, some values and to um, not-for-profits that might be well aligned with the government's mission. So I wouldn't be quick to, to prohibit, but you're certainly on to something that this is, this is an area that, that's capable of a lot more nuanced thinking and perhaps ex-ante regulation than, than we've been giving it. And what's tricky about these mandates, which is why I'm interested in trying to figure out how to bring them within the rule of law as opposed to just boundary lines. Yeah, is, this is, is a very interesting is, question, and it's the one which will probably be a follow-up in the second year of this series on regulation of the rule of law, and that is the question about funds which come to various agencies for different purposes, which they allocate without going through the government's budget, whereas the Constitution seems to say something to the effect that Congress makes the appropriations and this is a circumvention around a lot of that. So that's a big issue, and we're going to get to that issue. Chris, so, oh, you're wait. next. I was just going to, you we, asked a second, second question, point. which was about um, mandates that, I wasn't quite clear, because some of your mandates sounded like they were compliance mandates, and that would then be in internal. But you were also saying, yeah, I, so. Oh, well, that's the whole focus of my, so that is the entire focus of my paper, which is new duties. And they're new duties both that apply internally to how the firm is run, to what sort, how it's organized that no one else has. And then there's a few limited new duties that say, KPMG, you can't offer these kind of services or that kind of thing. But they're all new duties. But you're making and them, sorry. And if you say no new duties, um, 
you know, we're, there are a set of firms where actually you do need to impose new duties. You need to say, you know what? You guys need a better form of oversight because you've got a massive agency cost problem. Your structure is deficient. Or we could just simply, you know, do something worse to you to get your attention. However, um, what I'm trying to say is having an individual U.S. Attorney's Office determine these duties on a firm-specific basis as opposed to thinking in advance. Here's a common problem. We see it over and over and over again. Therefore, there should be a common solution. The duties we impose should be standardized, which is, I think, more consistent with your, what you're saying. I don't think we should be able to do firm-specific duties. I think your question really raises some, is some sort of an antitrust question, you know, the extent to which a government imposition puts, puts a firm at a, at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis competitors. Um, because to the extent that it's not doing that, to the extent it's just affecting sort of compliance within the firm or, or, or various allocations of authority within the firm, I think Jennifer's point carries a lot of weight. But if we're cutting off lines of business, if we're, if we're disadvantaging, disadvantaging a firm and in, a, in an industry space, we probably ought to think many times about that. And you certainly could see some, some bad stories about competitor firms um, being behind that, the hamstringing of the target firm. So, Although we're, you know, in no, some no, areas. I want to move on. OK. Chris. Uh, Jen, in the past uh, two years, Charlie referred uh, to some of these cases. Uh, there have been these uh, settlements. They're called settlements. Jamie Dimon goes to New York, goes to Washington every other day for two weeks, and then there's a press release. And it, there's a $12 billion settlement. And there are a few sentences describing other aspects to it. And there was a Bank of America, all of these financial settlements. Are these, are these Ds or Ns, or are they PAs at all? I don't even recall that there were uh, lawsuits filed against the firms. Were there, were there lawsuits? Were these things in court? They're civil. Well, I mean, well, no, some of these, I mean, the, the Jamie Diamond was, the JP Morgan was, so it depends on which JP Morgan. Yeah. So if we're looking at Bernie Madoff, you actually had a blend of a conviction, a DPA. So in many of these cases, there's no way to answer that. So most of these cases against the banks and also against many, like in an FC, a fraudulent current, uh, corrupt practices ca case, a lot of times you get a blend. So what you'll get is uh, take a fraud, uh, FCPA case. The parent gets a DPA or an NPA. Um, nothing is filed. If it's an NPA, see Ralph Lauren. Nothing, no charges are ever filed. It's just a contract. The subsidiary. Contract. There's no judicial involvement at all. Well, usually they're not filed the in general court. general counsel gets a telephone call from the Justice Department, says we have an investigation going and we'd like to talk about it. And well, actually, like the reason Ralph Lauren got an NPA, uh, you rarely get an NPA unless, unless the firm goes scurrying into the Justice Department and says, we got ourselves a big problem here and self-reports. You're rarely going to get an NPA without self-reporting. So they come in and hand them a case on the platter and say, and then the subsidiary in Argentina or wherever will often get a conviction, 
right? And we use the DPA or NPA to help enforce the monetary sanction on the subsidiary. JP Morgan has had a blend. There was a little conviction over here, an NPA over here, massive civil settlements. I think Bank of America was entirely civil. Um, entirely civil. Um, they're all different. They're usually um, the uh, BNP. No. Oh, no, it's not a new species. It's just a different species. More zeros, I, but no species. So uh, it's, I am looking at DPAs and NPAs, I mean, a legal, a particular legal construct. But there are lots of purely civil settlements, particularly with banks. Uh, the collateral consequences, one of the issues with the rules is it is true that when you do things like mandate a particular outcome, like collateral consequences, you get very weird things. And so sometimes the DOJ solves it by going civil, but the civil has teeth. Other times, which I am particularly fond of because it's so interesting and creative, they do things like with UBS. You do uh, one of these, my friends, against the parent, and you convict the Japanese sub the Japanese sub doesn't do business in the US. So there are no collateral consequences. Or Pfizer, we, we, we create a subsidiary, dump the bad stuff into it, convict it, impose collateral penalties on it, it goes away. But who cares? Because Pfizer's alive and well, right? Or Johnson & Johnson, it was a separate sub. So we do that kind of stuff all the time, but it's not actually insane because we've got these insane collateral penalties that are out of proportion with the type of wrong. We need a way to impose the sanction on the firm without saying no Pfizer division can sell drugs to Medicare, right? Like this can't be good for the country. Pfizer makes some good drugs. Right? How do we let Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson, Johnson & Johnson has had subs convicted. Right? How do we do that? So we get creative, right? Uh, BNP, BNPP Paribas, we could do it because the New York Department of Financial Services was willing to play ball and pre-commit to not debar them. It's, it's kind of the wild, I mean, it's sort of a wild, wild west to me with really big players. Okay, we have to move on because we're running out of time. We've run out of time. Okay, so, um, uh, one question which relates to both, uh, uh, what you said is if you, uh, one of the big stories in administrative law over the course of the last 30 years is OIRA. Uh, and so it was started by a Republican administration and uh, continued by uh, uh, d Democratic administrations. And you know, the story is that it's serving a very valuable purpose for the president and the executive office, which is um, getting control. So Elena Kagan has this well-known article about yeah. it. So why, isn't that, uh, why hasn't that dynamic operated in this case? Why, um, uh, you know, Dan's point about the highly decentralized structure of the um, Department of Justice, why hasn't there already been a move uh, on the basis of executive control toward uh, establishing some kind of um, uh, guidelines or some kind of policy uh, direction uh, for 
what's obviously a very um, uh, uh, wide-ranging power here. So to some extent, and this echoes something Dan said, in certain areas there has been. So the fraud division has quite a lot of control over FCPA cases. And that was done on purpose because, in part because these have international implications. You're often dealing with firms that are, in fact, in overseas. They're complicated cases. Um, Anti-fraud and money laundering, we've done that in some areas, but not in many others. Um, so I actually went down to DC, it turned out on the day that Eric Holder announced he was resigning, to talk to some very senior people, the top senior people in the criminal division, trying to talk about guidelines. And um, while Dan is saying that there may be some oversight, I also know that they are really not, at least publicly, a fan of centralized guidelines on these topics for US attorneys. They view this as enforcement authority. They view a quintessential part of what makes enforcement important is discretion. Part of what I'm trying to do is to start a conversation about why this is different, why they're not doing standard enforcement, they're doing regulation. And if they're doing regulation, they can't have the same view of, dis of discretion. They are right. Discretion is vital in the enforcement context because of the political pressures at the center. You're not going to convict big firms if Washington has too much of their hands in it. They will kill it. But this is different. So there has been some move in some areas, but they've left an awful lot of it off the table, even post Chris Christie. I mean, Chris Christie did cause them to adopt I mean, he's the source of more memos than any other US attorney. So it's not just, he was produced multiple memos out of multiple DPAs, um, which is why I love him so much, because it's kept me in, in business. Um, John, you? <clears throat> so I, um, this might be a good segue to Chris's paper next, which is, it seems to me strange that the remedy for some big problem in American society is to make it more like the administrative state, right? Because we're gonna hear about all the dysfunctions of the administrative state that you're gonna inflict on the criminal justice system if you go that route. And this is really to Ed's point, actually, which is the advances you've seen in changing and reforming the administrative state have been to make it more like the executive's control over prosecution, right? So it's, I, I find it very odd that you actually wanna fix a prosecutorial problem where we see a lot of virtues of centralized control by, I think you're gonna do is make it worse. So maybe actually I think the problem is, and this goes to the thing you just said, is that you're thinking of this as a separation of powers problem and it's not, it's a federalism problem because of the decentralized nature of US attorney's offices. And so it seems to me a, an interesting area of research would be, right, if we think federalism is makes America unique from other countries in Europe about how we do business, shouldn't you be able to detect differences in regions and states about uh, all kinds of things, like how many of these are being done, how effective they are, because you can compare different policies from different US attorney's offices across the country. And you can, I think, ultimately see our share prices for these companies in different regions going up or down because of different enforcement policies. And then once, maybe the problem is we are still so young in this, we don't, know yet the consequences of different policies on these kinds of agreements. 
And maybe it takes 30 years or so for us to pick which one works best, but we won't be able to pick it until we see how the states do at it. And we're just, you know, we need to give it more time. I don't want to mess up empirical um, promises because the, we certainly would like more empirical work in this area. But, but you know, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, and it's still the case in the Southern District that if a molecule of a firm passes through the Southern District, they have jurisdiction over it. So, so basically, the idea that you can really disaggregate, go, go regionally, and look at each district and see what their local U.S. Attorney does, it, it just won't work. We're, we're dealing with a relative handful of offices that, that are doing these things, and and the firms they're affecting. Are, are not necessarily primarily centered in those districts. It may be, it may not be. I mean, Credit Suisse is in my data set. I mean, now they're convicted, and then they're not in my data set, but they're in it too. They're not even a, a U.S. firm, right? So, you know, uh, San Francisco has jurisdiction over the GM case involving um, the failure to report. I mean, as you know, it's not, the U.S. Attorney Office jurisdiction is not necessarily, is the firm located there? So. We wouldn't, and you know the. So I wrote this more as a we've got to change what we're doing. I don't think I've actually figured out. I don't claim to have figured out. I will make that stronger. What the solution is, I'm just sort of where I am is I know the solution proposed by others, which is judicial review, is a non-solution, right? That it has no content to it because there are no standards. We have to look in certain directions. When I said rulemaking-like, I didn't say delegate entirely to administrative agencies, because I happen to think administrative agencies have been incredibly ineffective in this area. I just think you can't be adopting compliance programs in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year levels that affect international firms that are designed by a single prosecutor's office not particularly if it isn't the SDNY, ED, EDNY, or the fraud division, where at least they have some experience, though they don't know anything in particular. Um, if it's, you know, West Virginia, um, which has some in my data set, right? I mean, I've looked in my data set, the least effective and the most interesting tend to be not out of the Southern District, Eastern District, or a main justice. So the most likely to find something where you go, really? You did that? It's going to be somewhere else. And the most likely to find nothing at all, because they don't have a clue, will be out of the center. And I have some concerns about prosecutors who don't know anything about how large corporations are run, having the power to say, I think you ought to be spending $300 million a year on this. I think we need a, some sort of better system than that. But you're right to push me on my solution. I don't, I would love to say I've landed that, but I don't think I have. <clears throat> Good place to stop. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.